0: Let's hear again 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. May God bring his blessing to us. Reputations. Do you have a reputation? Do you know if you have a reputation? Somewhat rhetorical question, but have you ever spent time wondering what people think and say about you when you're not around? Or, as well, your home? or your children, we know people talk. We know people talk about us. We know we talk about people. We do it all the time. And I don't necessarily think it's bad always. It can be. But the reality is, when it concerns what people think about you, and what people convey about you to others... We're usually concerned about that. Sometimes it may be true. Sometimes it is false. Sometimes it can be kind. Other times it can be offensive. Sometimes it can be helpful. Other times it just comes across as hateful. There there is a reputation of sorts about us out there in people's minds. And a lot of that reputation often depends on what kind of relationship we have with certain individuals, what kind of perspective they have of us, and as well, what kind of perspective we have of other people. It's it's really one of those things that we're concerned with. As parents, we're always concerned what kind of reputation our children will bring to our home. It's a reality. Those things exist. Churches have reputations too. Uh, We're still fairly new to Kingston, but I, I would be curious to hear in particular what Christians have to say about hope, or what they may have to say about our worship, our ministry. I can speculate, I can trust that people are being genuinely kind in their thoughts. But we know that that's not always the case. What kind of reputation does hope have in this city? I don't think we've been here long enough to see our name in the news or in important social media circles to really know the answer to that question, but I can think of a few things that have often crossed my path that most of it is generally quite good. Just to encourage you on that. Some churches have good reputations, some have poor reputations. The church in Thessalonica had a reputation. Paul is addressing that right away within our text. They had a twofold reputation. If you were to go to Acts 17, they had a reputation before the world. The city rulers. And the general population of Thessalonica were agitated by this new church that suddenly sprung up in their midst. They heard claims uh, from the Jews. They were hated already by the Jewish population. And rumors began to swirl about them that were not true. And they were pitted against uh, the established government of its day. Not a great way to begin. They were persecuted because of that. It was a false reputation, but nonetheless uh, one that people perceived to be true. But they also had a reputation within the realm of the new church that was growing and just starting to grow in Europe. They're in Europe now. They move beyond the boundaries of Asia and what we now today call Turkey. But it's interesting that this brand new church that's only less than a year old, as Paul has written this letter, has gained a reputation amongst other believers and other churches held in high esteem praised and well spoken of. And you see it at the end of verse 8 and beginning of verse 9. We, we've we heard about you and we don't need to say anything to you because your faith has gone out and people are just amazed at what uh, what is going on. I'm ad living a little bit here. But they've, they themselves have declared what kind of uh, witness and entry we've had to you and how You have become a changed people, and you now stand out distinct from the community that you're in. You've turned from idols, you're serving the living and true God. That was the reputation that they gained from other believers and churches hearing about them. We hear you are serving. The living and true God. You know, you think about reputations that churches gain today. You think about it in context of people who come to a city and start looking for a church. How many times have you ever heard someone say, I am looking for a church that serves the living and true God. You don't, do you? What, what you hear, just yeah, sometimes, that's right, sometimes you do, that's true. I shouldn't say, but, but it's rare. Let me put it that way. Thank you. It's rare, isn't it? Families come. What kind of programs do you have for my children? Or you hear this My needs weren't being met at the other place. Are you friendly? I'm not saying some of these things aren't important. I'm just, where's our perspective? Is the preaching any good? Those tend to be relative things, don't they? I've often told this story about preaching, that one time in my last congregation, I had this experience where at the end of the service, after I'd finished preaching, I had one person come out, and there's three people in a row, and the first one said, that was terrible. That message just, it was bad. i sitting there going, oh, okay. The next one came out, thank you very much for your message. And then the next one, this is all in a row, within the space of just a few minutes, came out and said, that word really spoke to me this morning. I thank you for it. Like, I, I just feel uh, drawn to God, sort of thing. <clears throat> it's relative, isn't it? A lot depends on our moods and our experiences. I'm not saying having and looking for a church that has good preaching isn't important. But we understand those can be relative issues. But I have to say it is rare to hear somebody say, I'm looking for a church that serves the living and true God. And and that's what Thessalonica gained a reputation for. Their faith, as Paul has already mentioned in these opening words, their faith was sincere in following the Lord Jesus. You see him making that point in verse 6. Their love was passionate. They exampled real grace at work in their lives. And again, in verse 7 to to 9, that comes out. And their hope was genuine before people as they waited for the Lord Jesus' return. In verse 10. And and this wasn't something that we could look at and say, well, that was easy for them. They had the apostles with them. They were very close to the time of Christ. They had all of these things that were benefiting them. No, it wasn't easy for them. The apostles had been chased out of their city. They grew up in that city very quickly, and within a couple weeks, they didn't have any leadership over them. Timothy was left just to help work through details and help to keep them going. Paul and Silas had to flee for their lives. And they began to be persecuted from the very beginning it wasn't easy for them. And yet, their faith, their love, their hope, shone like no other. Everyone could see that. And again, I believe it's a challenge to each one of you, and a challenge to us as a congregation of the Lord. Can this be said of us? That my Faith is so sincere. People can see I follow Jesus. That that my love is so real that people can see grace is at work. That my hope in the Lord is strong. I talk as one who is yearning for glory. Can that be said of you? And that be said of hope. And collectively, I think it is a message for our church. Because we're a congregation of the Lord drawn together in the spirit to be the body of Christ in this city. This is who we are. What's our reputation? Well, the first thing I would hope uh, would be real, and we want to look at that in verse 6, is that we are following Christ. You became followers of us and of the Lord. And I'm summarizing that down to being followers of Christ. And what does that mean? Some of you may think, well, I am following Christ. I believe in him. But that word follow, is, it doesn't mean we're just simply getting in line and walking behind someone. It is a word that means to imitate. I'm going to imitate. And note what they imitated very specifically here. Because you might be thinking, well, I I can't do the miracles that Jesus did. Uh, I'm not a spectacular preacher like Jesus was. Uh, I am yet a sinner. I can't live perfectly like Jesus did. Uh, What does it mean to imitate Christ? And Paul is very specific with these words uh, when he talks about following the apostles and following or imitating the Lord. And that is in how they received the word of God. How they put into life and practice the word of God. You having received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit. It's all about how they responded to the Gospel, and to the Word of God. And they responded in a way, uh, we'll deal with that a little bit more, but they responded in a way that set them very distinct from the world. They weren't following, imitating what the world had to offer. They were following and imitating Christ. And immediately they stood so distinct that the Persecution and the afflictions met them. That word affliction is a word that means tribulation. It's a reference to persecution and opposition that met them right away. They imitated Christ in that they would not let that keep them from obeying and living out the life of faith before the true and living God? How does the world respond to tribulation? How do governments respond when people start saying uh, or confronting them about things that they don't like? They often surrender to that that, that pressure and they conform to the will of those around them, even if it's wrong. False teachers in the church. How do they respond to affliction and tribulation? They change the message to appease their followers. Uh, I won't say who it was, but I heard them say, you know, uh, when they were dealing with the whole issue of gender dysphoria that is so prominent. <clears throat> This person just simply said, well, that's not what the Bible means. We can be affirming and accepting. How did Christ respond when he challenged people about the truth of God? When he spoke with that authority that others said, no one has ever spoken God's word in this manner toward us. And when he became Uh, the focal point of many people's anger and hatred. He willingly, patiently endured the suffering, the reviling, the contempt, and went about continuing to do good and speaking the truth in love because he understood that the thing that was most necessary for the world around him was to know the truth because what did Jesus say about the truth? It sets you free. It it, it takes you out of that bondage that sin brings in so many areas. And and, and Peter writes of this very thing uh, of Jesus in in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says of of Christ uh, that to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. He left us an example that we should follow in his steps, that we should imitate him who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to the Father who judges righteously and who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree by whose stripes we are healed. You know, the reality that lies behind the affliction that meets us when we begin this life of faith and this walking and following of Christ is, is persecution is going to come. Tribulation is going to meet us. In fact, as Paul says, in much affliction, You received the word. Of course the world is going to oppose the truth. It has built its society and conduct upon the lie of the evil one that you can be your own God. You don't have to follow the truth of God himself. How do we respond to that? My friends, definitely not with hatred. Not with uh, uh, scorn, not with contempt, not with reviling. I followed a Twitter link this past week that spoke about how the church needs to begin mocking people who are caught up in this whole gender dysphoric tragedy. As as if that was a, a very integral part of our weakness and challenge to the world. And we're following Christ. Let them mock us. Let's meet them with the truth. Let's patiently and willingly meet them and endure these afflictions as Christ did. Not that it's easy. In much affliction We receive the word and we put it into our lives as the truth that we're called to follow. And when you do, as John Calvin said, this is going to be the black angel that dogs the gospel at the heels. Or as Luther said, the gospel will always, always be met with the ill will of this world. Of course it's going to. We don't need to go looking for affliction or putting ourselves out there for persecution or tribulation. It's going to come, but when it comes, we need to receive it as the response of a world that is dead in its sins. Lost. Lost and blinded by the evil one. And we need to respond with a sincerity of faith that says, I will not be ashamed. You know how many times Paul made that point in his letter to other churches. In Romans chapter 1, that's what he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. He wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says it about four times in different letters to different people in churches. Do not be ashamed. This is the truth that people need to hear because this is the truth that will set them free from the bondage and tyranny of the evil one and of the sin that they are blinded by. It's even as the Lord himself. And this is the great, this is the great Uh, Matter of our faith that this is the reality of sincere faith is its ability to stand the test of afflictions without shame. That's not easy, is it? But the Lord himself uh, spoke about this point in Luke chapter nine, verses 23 to 27, when he said to his followers, take up the cross And come after me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. And follow me. Imitate me. For whoever. Is ashamed of me. And my words. Of him the son of man. Will be ashamed when he comes. In his own glory. And in his father's. And that of the holy angels. There's a real warning. When we express shame for the word of God before this world. Rather than that sincerity of faith, this is God's truth that needs to be heard. And and in doing so, as he points out there, we do this in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Again, we're called to imitate Christ, but not in your own strength. The Holy Spirit has been given to you For this purpose. It's not that we don't feel the weight of affliction. Or that we're not grieved by some of the scorn and contempt that we're faced with. But that we have the presence and the power of the Spirit. Who's able to bring joy into your hearts. Because you are in the truth. And there's real joy in serving the living and true God. Even in the face of tribulation. Think about this. How could the apostles rejoice in Acts chapter 5 after they were imprisoned and and beaten and told, we don't want you to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And they went out saying, better to obey God than man. And then you get to Acts 5.41 after they have been dismissed, after all that they have suffered. It says, they rejoiced. That they were able to suffer for for the name of Christ. How could they do that? How could Paul and Silas in Acts 16, being imprisoned and put into the very back of the prison where there's no light, and they were put in the most dungiest of dungeons, if I could use that phrase? And yet, what do we read and hear of them? At midnight, they were singing. It's the Spirit of God. Or even more, let's come to the example of our Lord and Savior, which many of you know with Hebrews 12, too, that we are called to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for what? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. How did he do that? Some of you are probably thinking, well, he was God, he could do that. No, he was mad enduring that. He was God and man, but it was in his humanity that he endured the shame of the cross. And how? Because the Holy Spirit came and set before him the joy that these afflictions would result in. Jesus had his eyes fixed on the majesty, the beauty, the glory of the living and true God, his Father. And he knew that that majesty, beauty, and glory of his Father would be his in the resurrection. Put on me whatever you will, world. I have a glory in heaven that is far greater anything that this world can challenge. And the Spirit came and impressed that joy upon his heart. And the Spirit will do the same for you. These afflictions are testing the sincerity of your faith. Follow Christ. And in exampling grace in verses 7 to 9. And again, it's, it's a very... Particular word that is chosen here. You became examples to the church and uh, to everyone in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Example. That word example it talks about a mark that's left by a stamp. Children, how many of you have ever gone to a, a county fair or to a theme park and when you go in they stamp something on your hand. So that they know you've paid to get in. And that stamp stays there the whole day. That, that's, that's that word example. That's what it's referring to. And it's speaking about the grace of God that is so stamped upon your life. That you cannot help but let it show in your life. It's not something that can be hidden. The grace that brought them salvation in Jesus Christ was a grace that you see in verse 7, they wanted the world to know. (laughs) For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. (laughs) Now you think about that, that, that here is a church serving the living and true God and one of the things that they saw as a priority in the midst of their afflictions was making sure the gospel went out. Now let's compare that to the priorities of many churches today. When you stop and think priorities of churches social activism, environment. I, I received an email this past week in asking me to invite our church on Sunday evening, the last Sunday of April to an event where we could see how we as churches can uh, uh, impact our our world and society with environmental efforts. Laugh, yeah, but be disappointed. That's a priority. Is that really what the church is called to do? Or you have the very liberal-minded, we we need to get on board with all of this affirming identity to help people with their mental health and it's a big issue in the church as if this is what marks a church progressing the kingdom of god or reforming government do you know how much time and energy is being spent by churches in not just liberal-minded ones, but in all areas, how much time and energy is being spent in all of these areas. When you look here, and it says here, from you, as you serve the living and true God, you are sounding forth his word, his gospel. That's the chief labor of the church in the world. Nothing else comes close to that work that is ours to go and make disciples. And that word sounding forth, it, it's the word for trumpeting. Make the noise of a trumpet. The gospel. Get up on those high hills, Isaiah said, or Isaiah wrote, and, and tell the world, the Lord reigns. Where <laughs> is? It's written in 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ compels us to do what? To be ambassadors. That are going out to people and saying, You need to be reconciled to God. You are estranged from the one who created you. You are bound in the slavery of your sin. No wonder they... they, Focus on what they focus. They they have nothing else within their hearts that that can can be focused upon. And 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 here we are with the truth of God and the truth of man and the truth of the gospel. And what are we meeting the world with? What is a church that is serving the living and true God? Oh, the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge Jesus died for all and those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. The gospel, it's our life. (laughs) My dear friends, don't ever betray this truth that the greatest love that we can example to this world, to people who are bound in their sins, is trumpeting the gospel. There's nothing greater. There's no greater love to have for someone and to bring them Christ. And in exampling that grace, sounding forth the world, the Word of God, the gospel of Christ, it was a reality of their own lives. As Paul speaks there, we have heard you turn to God from idols, To serve the living and true God. What a contrast this church became in the world. Paganism of Thessalonica is not that different from the paganism of our current day. Do you know if you ever research paganism and idolatry that rises up and you go into the history of even scriptures? What is something that is always the outcome of a heart that worships false gods and and erects its idols towards them and builds up those high places? It's all of this sexual immorality and confusion of who we are as people. The Bible is full of it. That's paganism's end. And what we have going around us today is just a new age paganism. They're lost in understanding who we are as image bearers of God and as people bound in sin. But you are not. You've turned to God from those idols. Grace has been at work in you. My dear friends, if God's grace had never met you, where would you be today? You'd be out there joining in the foolishness that's all around. And I say this because that guards us against a pride that looks and says, look at those idiots. Isn't that a common phrase we hear? Rather, we should be saying, oh God, look at those lost people. What has sin done to ravage their souls?" God, where would I be if your grace did not shine in my own heart? I'd be there with them. Humility and love. Love from Christ that compels us to go and meet them. And in doing so, we're serving God. That's the thing about Christianity. We have a living and true God. A living and true God who has demonstrated true love in sending his son to serve the greatest need that this world has. And that again is deliverance from sin and death. But it hasn't even stopped there in serving the living and true God. He's also demonstrated us how he is making his people a new creation. A new creation in knowledge and holiness and righteousness. And giving unto them eternal life and inheritance. This is what we, who we worship. It's not idolatry. It's true and living God worship. And here we are exampling grace when we give ourselves over to it. My friends, I've, I say this often, I say this again. Do you realize how how a militaristic gathering for worship on the Lord's day is before the world? We have turned to God. And when we come on this particular day To worship the light and the glory of the kingdom of God shines in the darkness of this city in a very spiritual way. That is why I, I emphasize so much to you how important it is that we come and our first act of service at the beginning of every week, morning and evening, is to come and to worship God. We will serve him in rendering him the glory that is due his name so that the light of God's kingdom may shine in this spiritually dark city that we live in. That's what we're here for. And it's a testimony of that turning to God from idolatry in our own lives. And last, and just very quickly, not that this is going to come up again in this letter, but the last thing that showed a church that was serving the living and true God, following Christ, exampling grace, and awaiting the Lord's return. Verse 10, we're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We have a hope. You see, the first one dealt with the sincerity of faith. The second one dealt dealt with this uh, love that we are exercising. And this third one, the hope that we have. Jesus, Jesus who in the fullness of his humanity has gone back to heaven to reign, to sympathize, to prepare a place for us where he is waiting for that day when he will return to complete his work, to raise you, his beloved people, and to place upon each one of you who are in Christ that crown of life and righteousness and glory. And and this is our hope that we have. Even 2,000 years later, it is the same hope. This church had. We're Waiting for our Lord. And the thing is. In that day. We will not know any shame. Before God. We will never be put to shame. In the presence of God. Because Jesus has delivered us. From that wrath that is to come. We know. That is a day of hope and glory for us. Because Christ has consumed all the shame that we should have before a holy God. He has replaced that shame with love. a God who says he delights in his people. He will make you radiant. His beloved people who will shine forth the glory of God. And as a church serving the living and true God. And I come back to this question again to you, congregation. As individual believers, but as as a congregation as a whole. Are we serving the living and true God? Is this our reputation before this city? May it be. May it be so.